Continuing the story. Mark revealing who the Messiah is, who Jesus is. He has been ministering in Jerusalem this week leading up to his arrest and crucifixion. It hasn't happened yet, but he's engaging and been interlocking with some of the religious leaders uh, for a good chunk of these last couple chapters as we're in Mark chapter 12, finishing off the chapter this morning, beginning in verse 35. You can follow along. I'll read from the ESV today. As Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. In his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes these teachers of the law. They like to walk around in long robes and they like their greetings in the marketplaces. They like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honor at feasts, but they devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. But a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make about a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who were contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had all that she had to live on. So we know that many of the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, the scribes, they've been challenging Jesus. They've been coming to him with their questions to try to trip him up, get him to say something out of sync or totally unpopular that the crowds might begin to withdraw from him or distrust him, or that he would say something that would... uh, accuse himself of blasphemy in their eyes or against the law, and therefore they could arrest him. So that's what's been happening. We've been seeing that uh, kind of week over week. Now it's his turn to ask a question because the last line, which I didn't read, of verse 34 says, and then after this, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So now it's his turn to ask a question. And it seems like a strange question. I can think of a lot of Other questions to ask the crowds, the people, to maybe teach on, to make his point. But he says something that sounds probably pretty strange to our ears. How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And then he'll go on. Now certainly the Christ, the Messiah, the coming Savior that they were hoping for, had longed for, the prophets had spoken of, was going to be in the line of King David. King David would have been their highest king, set up on a pedestal, though he was not a perfect man. He was a man after God's heart. And in his lineage would come another, a a greater David would come. So where where this first David had his shortcomings and yet uh, was, was blessed by God and established them as a people, The next David, son of David in that line of Judah, the Messiah, would come and be greater, would be 
more perfect leader for them. Their Messiah would deliver and rescue, would triumph over their oppressors in, in current time. For them then, it was, it was Rome, but it had been Assyria, it had been Babylon in the past, and maybe there would be more. But when this Messiah came, he would deliver them and triumph, uh, triumph over their oppressors, reestablish them as a nation and to keep the promised land. So that, that was their hope and that was their longing. What Jesus does here in asking this question and then expanding on it, he's showing them that their vision for a Messiah is actually too small. It's limited. The true Messiah would come and do more than they could even imagine. He quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, almost verbatim in this line, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. It's It's a messianic prophetic psalm written by David. So King David is speaking of the future Messiah here. And and that sounds strange because in English it just doesn't translate. The Lord said to my Lord. But if you look back in most of our versions of of the translated scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, when, when the word Lord is all uppercase letters, a larger L and then, uh, but a capital lower, smaller, but capitalized O-R-D, That's the word Yahweh. That's the name Yahweh, the name of God translated, I am who I am, first given to Moses at the burning bush. And he would look and see this other Lord would simply, could could actually represent a a number of different Hebrew words, uh, but likely ruler or uh, some form of God. And so in this case, David is describing the coming Messiah as that Lord. And it would, have, it would have read, and Yahweh said to the Messiah, the coming ruler, sit at my right hand and I will, make, I will put your enemies under your feet. So it's a messianic prophetic psalm that David is proclaiming of some future day where Yahweh, the one true God, the I am who I am, would speak to this coming Messiah and put him over all things, make him sovereign over all. And that's King David's heart. And so when Jesus asks this question of the religious leaders, how can King David be speaking of this Messiah and call him his son when he is saying he is his Lord? He is his master. So that's the context. That's what Jesus is articulating to the Jews. Now, for us being so far removed, that seems strange. Mark is revealing the true nature and identity of the Messiah in the way that would have first resonated with the the Jewish readers, the listeners, the hearers, who are very aware of the Messianic promises and the Hebrew scriptures. So anytime Jesus would quote from something of old and apply it to himself or to the now, was striking. And this is what the, the religious leaders were calling blasphemy. How dare you claim these things of yourself? But he was doing so in a subtle way, again, for those who had ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to respond. And those that did were, were coming to believe in him as the Messiah. And once again, he's expanding their vision, that their vision of the Messiah was too small. Not wrong desires to have freedom and deliverance of, of oppression and tyranny. But Jesus was saying, I'm coming to, for a greater deliverance. And we see throughout Mark and the other gospel writers, he had come to deliver over greater enemies of sin, of oppression, of Satan, of death. 
and to establish a kingdom for all peoples, a kingdom that would endure forever, a kingdom throughout the whole world, not just one that was constrained and located by political and geographical lines in the Middle East, but one that would expand to all peoples everywhere and endure forever. No, your vision of the kingdom is too small. And the way that Mark writes kind of behind the scenes, he writes in a way that the reader would, would hear this and both in astonishment, how could, how could these first hearers and these responders be so slow? How could the Jewish leaders have missed what he was saying? That should be one of the questions we would ask. And then in humility, we would say, how do I do the same thing? How have I been slow to perceive the kingdom of God, to perceive Jesus as the Messiah? And that message stands the test of time, that we would ask that same question. We're astonished at how slow they are to receive, but in humility, God help me perceive your kingdom the upside-down kingdom. We've seen throughout this broader section, and we see it again here, that Jesus is condemning those in power, those with those positions of influence and privilege and the rich ones. He's condemning them for their hypocrisy, how they love the best seats of honor, flowing robes. They love their esteem, yet they will be condemned. They will be brought low. And Jesus continues to elevate the least likely ones, the outcast, the marginalized, the poor. In this specific example, the widow, as he observes this woman who comes, this lowly one with almost nothing to her name and gives all she had to live on is actually the translation of that Greek phrase is she gave her very life. It's possible that she would not know where her next meal came because she came with this offering. Now, maybe you've heard this passage preached and possibly misapplied. Look at her generosity. We should give like that. Pass the offering plates. This woman was faithful more than she was generous. She was so devout, and what was required was of the temple tax, which she was trying to pay, a half shekel, which she did not have to her name. So she came to give all she had, hoping maybe there would be mercy from the religious leaders on her. Maybe God, maybe she had been taught that without bringing the full temple tax, God would judge her. So she's bringing everything, perhaps in faithfulness, perhaps in fear, but probably less so in generosity of heart. And Jesus has condemned these leaders for being willing to devour the widow's house, her livelihood, to prescribe the law. Now, when that temple tax was first initiated, all, the roots of it go all the way back to Exodus when they were first being established as a people and building the tabernacle. Every one of the community was to bring a half shekel offering. But in that day, wealth was almost universal they had been completely in poverty and slavery in Egypt. If you know the story, they were brought out, out at the plunder of the Egyptians. God provided for them offerings of, of gold and silver and wealth, everyone out of, out of the community. And they were all equal. They all had about the same amount at that point. No one owned land. No one had yet cultivated. They got manna from heaven every day and quail in the evening. It was all, it was all even. It was, uh, it was a balanced community at the time. 
So when everyone was invited to bring the half shekel, and it does say poor and rich, there was some variation, but not to the extremes like we would have today even, and certainly in Jesus' time. It was that all could bring and participate equally in, in the worship of God. That's what was being invited. So to not change the temple tax requirement in a time of completely different circumstances where the rich and the poor, the gap between them was wide, would totally miss the heart of God behind that original intent. And that's what Jesus is so angry about. The money changers in the temple, the barriers that they have put up in, to the outsiders, to the Gentile, to the non-Jews, to be able to access the kingdom, to be able to come and bring an offering. He was incensed by that, that injustice. And that's the same thing that's happening here. This woman has come and given all that she had with a desire, a striving to be faithful, but with a demand from the religious rulers on top of her, not caring what happens to her, her household, her livelihood, just bring the tax. While they're going over and above for show with no generosity or faithfulness in heart at all. This is the way that Mark wants us to see the kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. The elevated and privileged and empowered will be brought low, will face eternal consequences potentially, great condemnation and punishment, while those that seem lowly and last and least, and the widows, the orphans, the poor, the hurting, the sick will be elevated. They will be the ones entrusted with the true kingdom. They will be the ones that will not forget the hurting and the poor and the suffering. Just as God's people of old, coming out of slavery, should not have forgotten their own slavery, their own oppression, and therefore worked for the freedom and justice of all peoples. How quick we are to forget. How quick we are to drift. But God never forgets God's eyes are always upon the last and the least and the poor. In Luke 6, 20, Jesus says to his disciples, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It will be given to you. This is the kingdom reality. In God's time and in God's way, he will bring the high low and the low honored and esteemed. We don't have to look far today to still see nations and peoples, maybe in our own, that exploit the poor, that do little to alleviate systemic poverty. It's probably harder to find the exceptions than the, than the norms. I know as I was thinking on, on this injustice and the demand of the temple tax, the, the, the fabled story of Robin Hood, maybe having some, some roots in in, in historic England in the 13th century or so. Um, I grew up with the, the Disney cartoon version and the, the Sheriff of Nottingham, just that, that creature of, of, what was he, some kind of a wolf, I think, maybe aptly uh, portrayed, just mercilessly stealing from the poor and the widows and taking all that they had to stockpile the treasury. I'm sure we have replete real examples that come to mind in our midst and in our world. But God has always had his mind and heart on the poor 
and the impoverished. A few, a few selections from some of the oldest laws in the book, right from their beginning as a people in Exodus and Leviticus, Exodus 22, 25. If you lend money to one of my people among you who is needy, do not be like the money lenders of the world. Charge them no interest. That's countercultural. Chapter 23, verse 6. Do not deny justice to the poor in your land. Verse 10 of that same chapter. For six years you will sow your fields and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. For then the poor among your people may get food from it. Do the same with your vineyard and with your olive groves. This is an upside down kingdom. Leviticus chapter 19, also from that ancient law book, verse 10. Do not go over your vineyard a second time. Do not pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the immigrant. Chapter 23, verse 22 of Leviticus. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the immigrant. I am the Lord your God. This is just a selection. There's, there's so much through God's law. When he declares at the end of statements like this, I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh. I am who I am. It gives the weight of these commands, not just to, this is good that you should do. This is compassionate to those in need. Be that kind of people. It's more than that. It's, this is my character. This is who I am. To know me means to live this way. I am the Lord your God. Reflecting on this passage and working through it, I, I wanted to, to pause, and rightly for all of us, we pause and consider this individually. Where am I participating in the work of God and his character and his nature to see those in need in my community, amongst me? How do I serve? How do I be present? Can I give? Should I give? What are my gleanings? Right, as we take, we take these kinds of passages and say, most of us don't have acres and acres of land that we're planting some form of grain or harvesting grapes or olives as if they could grow around here, but many other things can. Some of us garden, which will lead me to some of our highlights today. But what are our gleanings? And how do we leave the extra, the abundance that God has given for those in need and share it? Certainly, it could be our income. That could be our harvest, and we should look to that. And then collectively, reflecting on, am I leading this well with the elders and with the ministry leaders within our context to be gleaning kind of people, to be giving people, to, in the midst of a very, very affluent society, to be people who see the poor amongst us, the needy amongst us, and respond in ways that reflect God's heart and character and create that space. And there are, there's a, in fact, there's so many that we can't highlight them today, and this will lead into next week of some of the ways we get to participate with God's work and God's character. But a couple that I do want to highlight. So Mark is going to come, and Patrice is, are going to come and share about ministries that you may be aware of or may not be aware of and could participate with and be invited into. 
come here, come line up here. I think that'll keep you on the video screen for everyone watching online. Mark gets orange, Patrice gets green. Let's start with Mark. I know you're, you're kind of on behalf of Diana sharing about one of the ways that we are trying to be gleaning kind of people. And you drive by it every time you come into this parking lot, our little free pantry. So highlight this, this little ministry, this gleaning ministry. Yeah. yeah, so Diana's back with toddlers today. But uh, I don't know if some of you remember back a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, we had, I call it the little crash, and that's probably not the right term, but the, the little wooden thing out here was used for candles as we had the walk through trees. And then just kind of the brilliant idea that someone had to convert that to a little free pantry. Um, so we have restocked that as a, as a body probably a couple times a week, but then there are also folks that come through from the community that put things in. There are a couple of folks that were uh, that we met through Friday Night Food Truck that have restocked it. Uh, but just a really great opportunity for needs that, you know, someone could just come by anonymously and pick up food. And some of you that are here all the time or frequently, or there are people that come by a few times a day. Uh, the pickup in our community. Lots of folks that we know are seniors. They may be uh, folks with kids, singles, and just a variety of folks. So just to know that's a, a pretty easy way, but just an opportunity for people to know I can go there and there will be generosity. There will be food for me. And so just appreciate that. So as a very practical matter, there's a, a tote out in the, the lobby here, the foyer, uh, it says pantry donations, and right now we've got quite a bit of mac and cheese, but kind of the uh, sustainable uh, protein stuff, uh, peanut butter and uh, pork and beans and soup and canned tuna. I have a story about canned tuna I'm not going to tell right now. Um, ask Mark after. Yes, I'll ask me after. It's a really good story. Uh, <laughs> But some of those uh, sustainable protein things. But it's just a way for our community to know you're welcome here, and we want to minister, serve with you, share with you. Even if you can't give anything to us, we want to share together. Yeah, thank you. I, it's such a great example to me of that, that gleanings, that extras, as you're shopping and putting in an extra can or two or more. And it's, it's, it's truly amazing. We had the idea, I'm like, it's just not going to get used that much. We're up here on the hill. We're in a pretty affluent area, uh, but we need to do something. I mean, we need to, like, let's, let's keep trying new things. It is amazing how much it's used, how often people, from the community in and out, some people giving some, and receiving at the same time, participating with it. Uh, I know you guys do that already, but it goes much broader. If you're not here on our site throughout the week, you probably just don't see it. It is, it is used all the time. Uh, and we see some of our neighbors nodding in agreement. So really cool. Keep that ministry up. It's, it's, it feels like a small thing, but it's significant. And that dovetails to Patrice and the ministry that you're doing. It's not quite as visible. from You're not driving by it every time you come in, but our giving garden and the vision that is growing. And so tell us a little more about the giving garden. Um, yeah, it's, it's not my baby. Um, it was me and a few other people had this idea all along, and... Um, I think it was Jenna who just said, let's get it going. And unfortunately, she, she's moved, but it's in the area behind where she used to live. And um, visions and the amount of time are never, never equal. Mm -hmm. So last year, it, was, uh, it, it stumbled a bit, but we're getting it going again. Um, but the original vision was not only to grow produce to give. Um, for me, what 
really got me going on that is um, the church my sister goes to, they have a giving garden that has been used for years, and I was talking to the gal. And um, seeing on the Fridays the amount of people who came mm -hmm. for the meals, it's like, yeah, we got to get this going. Yeah. And um, so there's several visions, and I'm hoping that people who are familiar with gardening or want to get learn a little bit about it um, can get their feet wet on it. But the different visions, I hope, will help the whole community of, Unity, of Union Hill get involved in it, no matter your age. Um, one is, of course, the Giving Garden to grow produce and give that to their several um, uh, food banks around that that have needs, and they actually have lists of the foods that they want us to grow, according to the community. Um, then there's the flowers. We're mm -hmm. going to be growing flowers there, and that's to make a little bit smaller footprint on God's earth, mm. on Earth Day. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we're going to be growing our own flowers, or most a lot of them that we'll be, you'll be seeing up there. Um, and then for the Sunday school, it was for them to go over and show God's wonders through either seeds or worms or the bugs or the bees that are around there. Mm -hmm. And then we also have some family plots. We've got um, a few um, areas that families can grow so they can either have time together and also the idea of the first fruits that they will be part of the giving. And um, then the community, eventually I have this vision, like within five years, we might have tables and benches and, and places for people to go and gather. And then also for people of all ages at this time to get together to work in the garden so the young children can meet the older people and, and, uh, and the whole way down mm -hmm. on there. Um, but the focus is, is to give and to, to grow. Um, I did become the leader by default, probably because my passion for gardening and, and my drive to get this, but um, I'm not a leader. I hate asking for help. It's just really hard for me to ask people. Um, thank goodness I've been blessed by not having to ask. This year I was out there working and, and uh, John and Rory were working on the, uh, the tiny houses. And Rory goes, I have a tractor. I can bring it over. I never would have thought of asking. And so it was wonderful for him to go out and flatten it out. And then yesterday was a beautiful day. And some gals came over and they helped start to fill the, um, one of the uh, raised beds. They did in an hour what would have taken me days. And so I felt like I was blessed by them just saying, hey, we can do it. It's okay. You don't, you don't have to feel bad about asking for help. So the Giving Garden, what I'm planning on doing is um, in the, uh, the weekly newsletter just saying what day. I never know what day I'm going to be able to be out there because we got the weather working against us. And um, so I'll just say I, I'll, I plan on being out there that day. And if you've got an hour or so, you can come out and help. If you don't know how to garden, that's great because I love to teach. And if you do know how to garden, that's wonderful too because I can just say, okay, I need this to be done and, and that can be done. Cool. Thank you so much. Appreciate both of you sharing. Give them a hand. That's fine. Yeah, good. I like it. And Patrice, I have no problem asking people to get engaged. <laughs> 
and to help to get your hands dirty. So I will always advocate for that. I love the vision. I love the growing vision of that, right? We use that language of growth and life and greenhouse all the time. It makes sense to have a garden to try to steward all the places in, in our property. And there's a whole lot more land that we have that's not used uh, that we can see that expand. I love the year's vision while we say, what can we do this season? What has God, in, what, what has God entrusted to us this season? How do we cultivate that? Well, if we have more, what does it look like to see multiplication happen in the fields? Love that. Obviously, it's not thousands of acres that uh, our world is going to need. And even the elders were meeting this week uh, considering, as we always do, where are we headed? Not just we as a church, but a community, a world. Uh, clearly, God knows, uh, but we don't, but we're seeking his heart. And, and there are signs, and there's things that are very, I think, very clear that food insecurity and need is only going to, uh, to grow and to get, uh, to get harder for many uh, in the years ahead. How do we be on the front edge of that? Obviously, uh, an acre or two of garden isn't enough, but it is a gleaning. And, and we recognize that change happens as everybody works with what they have and gives in that way. So let's be that kind of people. Thank you for sharing those highlights. Thank you for already participating and engaging in that. For us to be a people that would uh, disregard the poor or ignore them or say, they're not amongst us. We're, we're in an uh, affluent area. This would be not just missing the heart of God, but antithetical to the gospel. It would actually be anti-Christ, anti the work that God wants to do and is about. It's who he is in all places. I know those are, those are strong words. I think I'm in good company using strong words for those that disregard, ignore, or worse, oppress the poor in the world. God does consistently through his word. In, in my reading this week, I didn't even have to go look. I just, in, in, I was in, I'm in Isaiah, in Isaiah 10. I'm reading the beginning of Isaiah 10, and there it is. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights, to withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey, robbing the fatherless, the orphan. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. We could go looking and find many places where God speaks strong words against those who oppress. Jesus continues that ministry clearly. In fact, the, one of the ways that he announced his ministry, recorded by Luke in Luke chapter 4, he quoted from Isaiah 61 and declared that this is what he has come to do. This is what the Messiah does. Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is the way that Jesus announced his ministry, his coming, with the heart on the poor, the imprisoned, the oppressed. So to disregard, to ignore, potentially joins in with systemic oppression rather than alleviating it. We can make any, any number of excuses. We can believe the lie. We, those with, uh, with, those with privilege, the rich, 
to say the poor are where they are because of their choices. And that's pure ignorance to the reality of systemic oppression and generational poverty that has far more to do with things other than bad personal choices, which, by the way, we are all susceptible to and replete with. It's antithetical to the heart of God. We have to actively today ignore the needs of those impoverished in our community. I say actively ignore because we have amazing resources at our fingertips, at our disposal to read, to listen to, to glean from that would show us the systemic oppression and poverty, often along racial lines in our community, in our country, in the history of our nation. Do not actively ignore the character of God. If you want a list, I've got a list. I'm, I'm listening through How We Love Matters by Albert Tate right now. Great listen. If you want to join me in the journey of seeing ways that we must love and work toward equity, justice, and reconciliation in every way because this is gospel work. This is synonymous with the good news of who Jesus is. Now, let me very clearly say, we, if you consider yourself rich, and I think I've articulated that well enough, we are, we have the opportunity to engage in the heart of God, to be with him where he is, not to be the savior. There's only one savior. It's not the rich's job to save the poor. But it is our responsibility as ones who have been dearly loved, see sermon from last week, and have received the love of God so much that we could begin to love like that. As Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll follow my lead. If you know me, you'll follow me. You'll be people that do what I do and go where I go. And as I've said many times throughout this series, 